We have spent the past two weeks in a sermon series called Facing Narcissism, where in week one we talked about facing narcissism in a narcissistic culture. And last week we spoke about facing narcissism in the church, and that's where we bring the narcissism of the culture into the church, as well as bringing our own struggles, personal struggles with narcissism that can come from our personalities and our upbringing. Any woundedness that we may have had from our childhoods, we can bring all of that into the church. Now, last week we didn't have enough time to talk about one of the major areas that narcissism weasels its way into the church, and that is through conspiracy theories. Our culture is loaded with them right now because of the COVID-19 pandemic, the current political tensions, and the social unrest that exists in our society. And then when you factor in all of the individual vantage points that people view these things from, different age classes of people, different classes in terms of financial classes, different ethnicities, different locations where whether people are urban or metro or suburban or rural, people look at these from all kinds of different vantage points. And then throw in not to mention social media, the influence there. And big tech companies are actually influencing the messaging that's going on out there. And you also have many hostile foreign nations that are playing into all of this. But sadly, the biggest users and perpetrators of the genre of conspiracy theories happens to be evangelical Christians who seem eager to piece together all the signs of the times that frankly might even be going beyond the problem of evil itself. Well, today on Labor Day weekend, we're having a message on work entitled A Labor of Love, which is going to highlight our life's work that ought to be done for the glory of God. But let me just say that this sermon today actually could have also been included in our narcissism series as well, because instead of getting one's identity from God through a relationship with Jesus Christ, that I've been saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that I'm a child of God, instead of doing that, so many in our world try to get their identity from their work. So many are looking for their value, their worth, their hope, their meaning, and their joy from what they do for a livelihood from their work, and often this false identity of work comes to people in two different ways. One of those is the live-to-work mentality. See, everything in a person's life revolves around their work. Some people really believe that I am what I do, and work then becomes an idol. And people are willing to do whatever it takes to succeed in their work. And even rest is only something that we do so that we can get right back to work because we live to work. And in this live-to-work philosophy, it's all about reaching one's potential. It's about one's achievements. It's about my accolades and look at what I can do. And happiness then becomes about climbing the ladder of promotion, of power, of wealth, of getting those increases and those bonuses. It's about status and approval. And frankly, the live-to-work philosophy is all about self 
promotion. Now, the other philosophy of work that guides some people's identity is the work to live. So you have people that live to work, and then you have other people who work to live, that we're only working so that we can do what we really want to do in life. Our work is to support a certain lifestyle that we want, or our work is, uh, is to support a certain identity that we want in life. Now, this is a classic working for the weekend mentality in our culture, or following the pursuit of happiness, which, of course, is the American dream. So it's all about our next big purchase. Working is all about that next dream vacation. It's all about that next big investment. It's about getting that winter home or that summer cottage, or it's about allowing me to retire early. And this work-to-live philosophy actually hit a real big snag when the COVID-19 pandemic came along and our state and our federal government started handing out some lucrative unenjoyment checks. Did I say unenjoyment? Okay. I meant unemployment, but I think you get what I'm pointing at. Uh, a lot of U.S. workers have been actually getting more on unemployment than they've been getting in their work. And I have actually observed during this time some Christians who have very good jobs in this region. The kind of jobs that literally, if there's one opening at their company, their corporation, their plant, there will be hundreds of applicants for that one position because people stand in line to get jobs like this. And I have seen a number of these folks be real excited to be laid off and making money, so much money. In fact, some of them make more money than when they work. So they're able to pursue their pleasures, golfing all the time, enjoying their summers, doing this without having to work. So they don't have to work to live. They get to live, and the government takes care of them. Now, I must say that both working to live and living to work are tied to false identities. Both have an exaggerated opinion of one's own pur uh, purpose and importance, and which are often linked to things like pride, to pleasing people, to perfectionism, or to our unmet need in life for some people to be needed. Reverend Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, writes, every human being must live for something. Something must capture our imaginations, our heart's most fundamental allegiance and hope. But the Bible tells us that without the intervention of the Holy Spirit, that object will never be God himself. If we look to some created thing to give us meaning, to give us hope and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and it will break our hearts. You know, many people wonder why their life seems to lack direction, why they don't seem to have any purpose in life, why they just seem hopeless, they don't have hope or joy, and why nothing ever seems to satisfy them. Well, at its core, it's because people are working for themselves, and they're not working for the Lord. If our life in this world is to really count, if it's to really amount to something, then we're going to have to learn that how we live flows out of what we believe. So many today are not allowing God to be the center of their life, the one who is on the throne and who calls the shots. Thus, they journey through life without a clear sense of direction. 
or a clear sense of purpose. With God in the picture, life becomes about God's will for our lives, and God's Word says our work matters. What we do in life, whether we're a stay-at-home mom or whether we're an employee or an employer, whether we're a laborer or a supervisor, whether we're a blue-collar worker or a white-collar worker, whatever we do in life, our work matters. That's what God says. And we do not need to be a full-time professional ministry person to work for the Lord. Again, our text today in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24 Let me read it for you when I get there. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. You know, the work of pastors, the work of missionaries, the work of seminary and Bible college professors does not carry more weight in God's eyes than a service station attendant, a bank teller, a mechanic, a carpenter, a car salesman or car saleswoman, a custodian, a truck driver, a logger, or a farmer. All work matters. Why? Because it's not about what you do. It is about who you do it for. So let me ask you this question. Do you view your work as God's calling upon your life. Is that how you see your work? Do you see it as God's calling upon your life? Well, let's go back to the beginning and see what God actually says about work. And I want to read for you from Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. This means that we're made in God's likeness. We're made in God's image. We're made like God in, in, the, in, the, in similar ways. In other words, God created things ex nihilo in Latin. It means out of nothing. God made us so that we can create things also out of nothing because we're like God. So you know what people do in our world? They make videos. They make websites. They build things. They create buildings. They send emails and write letters. They plan things. They order things. They organize things. They ex nihilo things. We create things out of nothing. All right? And then we also have the reward of seeing the results of these things that we've created in life. Well, the text continues in verse 29. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the earth and every tree that has fruit and seed in it, they will be yours for food. And so in all, and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Now it continues into chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work. Catch that. He had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Okay, remember, we're made in the image of God here. 
Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. I hope you understand by seeing that, that God works. And in the creation accounts, we have that recorded over and over in the scriptures because the New Testament even talks about that in him and through him all things were created because Jesus was involved in the creation. We read in the early, the first verse of the Bible that in the beginning, God, Elohim, which is singular referring to one God, but it has a plural ending. So it's talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then we have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. So we have the Trinity there involved in creating, working for six days to create everything that was created. God works. Now, in Mark chapter 6, we have the account of Jesus actually going to his own hometown synagogue in Nazareth. And as he teaches there, the people who heard him were absolutely amazed. They were blown away by both his teaching his miracles, and his wisdom. And in verse 3, here's what it says in Mark 6, the very first sentence. Isn't this the carpenter? That was their understanding of Jesus, his own hometown. People only knew Jesus as the carpenter. Why? Because he didn't begin his ministry till he was 30 years of age. So he worked for a decade and a half, maybe close to two decades in his father's carpentry shop. He was known as a carpenter. He wasn't known as the son of God and the son of man. So what you need to understand is that even the son of man was not above work. Now, some people think that work came after the fall and that people just lived a a life of luxury in the Garden of Eden without having to work or having any responsibilities in it at all. But you know, a closer look at the Bible presents a different picture. Let's go back to Genesis and go to chapter 2 right now and verse 15. Here's what it says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. To do what? To work it and take care of it. In other words, taking care of it there is to be a steward. It's to be a manager. So even in the Garden of Eden, even in paradise, where God worked to create paradise, and God's intention was the Garden of Eden for humanity before the sin entered the world in the fall, even there, though, humankind was to work. Now, it was only after sin entered the world that work became such a challenging thing, which again, is why we so desperately need Jesus to redeem us from the curse of the fall. The Bible says that cursed is anybody who's hung on a tree. Jesus was cursed for our sake, so we don't have to be cursed. And in Jesus Christ being redeemed by him being bought back, Jesus then is the one who brings dignity to our work. Jesus is the one who gives our work importance and gives our work value, gives our work meaning. See, God created each one of us to work. And we should view our work as God's calling. That's part of God's calling upon our lives. And when we work, we're fulfilling part of God's calling upon our lives. Again, verse 23 here. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. See, part of recognizing a work as God's calling in our life is to understand that our work in life is part of our ministry. It's what God's called us to do. We tend to think of work done in the church as ministry rather than work that we do in the world. And we tend to divide the sacred from the secular. 
But you know, in God's economy, he views all of these things the same. He views them all as one. Now, back in the, in the late 1970s, I believe 1977, our local church over here, Peace Lutheran Church, had called a new pastor, and he was here in this community for about a quarter of a century. And if those of you remember this pastor, he would walk most days from the parsonage or the church, and he would walk down to Poplar to get his mail and the church's mail, and he would walk back uh, to the church. That was his exercise regiment. Well, it happened to be during the 90s that Brian and Julie Johnson put up that mini storage. They sold it later on, but they built that mini storage there, and it meant that they had to tear out part of the curb and gutter that was there to put a driveway entrance into that place. And then, of course, the village wanted them to put an entryway there of cement, which would match the curb and then come back up into the curb. So Brian and I set that up, and we poured the cement, and I was there finishing it, and uh, the pastor of the Lutheran Church walked by, and he didn't recognize me when he walked by, but when he came back, he noticed me, and he says, Daryl, what on earth are you doing? And I said to him, well, I'm serving some of the parishioners in our church, and I'm serving all of the people that are going to rent some of these mini storages things here. And he had this look of disgust. He threw his arms up and walked away like I was saying something blasphemous. Well, folks, there are ministers of construction, ministers of accounting, ministers of forestry, ministers of law enforcement, ministers of daycare, ministers of nursing, ministers of plumbing and ministers of home, ministers of the kitchen, ministers of farming and of business and of management, and I could go on and on and on. My wife happens to be a pediatric registered physical therapist. She works with children for her calling. She's done that for more than three decades of her life but she's also been very involved and active in children's ministries in our church. Basically, in many respects, pastoring children in our church. And much of what you see in Mission Kids has been her brainchild over the years. You see our Vacation Bible School? She's the one who dreamed all that up and started all that. And she happens to believe that God has called her to do both of these things. In fact, she views them as equal in calling, in purpose, in her life. And what's interesting to me, the comments that uh, the former Lutheran pastor made to me on that particular day is because of what Martin Luther wrote about work. Martin Luther said, the idea that service to God should have only to do with a church is without doubt the worst trick of the devil. How could the devil have led us more effectively astray than by the narrow conception that service of God takes place only in the church. Dorothy Sayers once wrote, all work done well and for God's glory is Christian work. In this church, we are privileged to have five pastors. We're blessed to have five pastors in this church, but you know what? We have all kinds of ministers in this church because we have all kinds of people working in ministry and the majority of the people working in ministry work outside the doors of this facility. They work out there in the secular world because God doesn't separate the sacred, the sacred from the secular. You know, Colossians 3.23 tells us here that we're working for the Lord. And sometimes when we think that, you know, when we work for the Lord, it means People think that when we do something for someone else, we're doing it to meet their needs. For instance, we have food share this week, and we're helping out 
some people in our community who are less fortunate. We're helping out some people who are needy. And when people come alongside us to do things for us or meet a need in our lives, they're helping out in our lives where there's some kind of deficit. But you know when the Bible says that we work for the Lord? You have to understand, God has no deficits. God isn't needing anything or lacking anything. Listen to Acts 17, 24, and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples made by human hands, and he is not served by human hands. Listen to this very carefully. As if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Let me read for you verse 24 here again. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. See, that answers the question. If we work, we're to work heartily unto the Lord, but it isn't because the Lord needs something. God isn't, doesn't have any deficits. We don't do something for God, so therefore God's in a better place and in better shape because we did this for God. We go to work each day and show up on time and all that. No, 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 no. Verse 24 tells us it's for our good. It's for our reward that we work. And right now in our culture, we have a lot of people not working, even though they, uh, they, there are want ads all over the place. You drive all around Duluth, and you will see want ads for looking for employees at most businesses. But so many right now in our society want handouts. And the news has done uh, reports on this recently. They've gone out and interviewed people, and people have all kinds of wants. Yet not everybody wants to work. It's someone else's responsibility, people are saying, to take care of me. And we're seeing right now the results in our culture of people not working for the Lord. We are to work to serve the Lord, and we're to work to serve others. Now, Ephesians, just a, a, a book before us here, a couple books before, uh, tells us in chapter 4, verse 28, the following. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those who are in need. Work that is honest, work that is moral, work that is, that is useful is God's work. It's important work. It's lawful work. And we work, first of all, so that we don't have to be, be dependent upon other people. And secondly, we manage our money well so that we can help others in need. And really, when you think about it, what the Bible is teaching here is what the Bible teaches over and over and over again, that we are to love God with all our heart, mind, strength, and soul and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We work because we love God. God works. God has set it up for us to work. It was that way from the very beginning. It was that way in the garden. And out of reverence for God, we work. And then we work so we can help others, so we can love our neighbors, so that we don't have to be dependent upon our neighbors. And certainly, in loving our neighbors, we manage our money well and take care of our money well, so that if we have a fellow sister or brother in Christ in need, we can help them. And we can help those out who are our neighbors, those that are in our proximity, in our network, we can do something to help them out. That's why God has us work. Our work matters as well to God because our work is part of our witness. You know, Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Basically, the Bible says when you work, work hard. 
Work hard. That's part of our testimony. It's part of our witness as Christian beings to be a good employee, to work hard every single day, to go the extra mile, to do what other people will not do, to do what other people don't do, to show up on time, give our employer an honest day's labor, and earn a reputation for excellence. That is part of our witness and testimony as a a follower of Jesus Christ and as being part of a, a body of believers in Jesus Christ. Now, let me read for you Colossians 3.22, because this is part of our context here. It says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Now, I have to be honest with you here and talk just a little bit about slavery, and especially slavery back then in the Roman Empire, and it was really a mixed bag, okay? There were high-end slaves, which were basically household servants of the rich, who would tutor and educate many times the affluence children. Uh, Many times they could be paid for their duties in doing that. There were also people who were enslaved in the Roman Empire because they sold themselves to pay debts, or to pay off family debts. And so they were so far in that the only way out was they became basically indentured servants of more affluent people in the Roman Empire. Now, there were also people that were slaves because they were captured as part of the military conquest of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire con- controlled one-fourth of the world's population at that time. And if you, it was, it was a common tactic in military conquest to take the brightest and the best out of foreign countries so that those are the people that would be the most likely to lead a revolt against you. So they would come back and become slaves. And sometimes they would be in prominent positions like we see Daniel in Assyria and Persia back in the Old Testament times. We saw that happen when he was taken in conquest. It was Babylon, excuse me, not Assyria, uh, taken in conquest. We saw that happen. But many times these people that were taken these foreign conquests ended up with the real terrible jobs. And they were abused and terribly, terribly mistreated. Uh, they were the oarmen in the, in, the, in the galleys of ships and had, you know, working in the mines and some of the other terrible, dirty jobs that existed back then. And there was also sex slaves that existed uh, for their various indiscretions in the Roman Empire. But Christianity happened to be a fledgling religion at first, maybe 500 or so followers at the time Jesus left this earth. And uh, they weren't going to take on the Roman Empire over the issue of slavery, over an issue of social justice uh, from the get-go. And so they proclaimed the gospel instead to win the hearts of people. That's why the early church, as the church started to grow and grow and grow, it was comprised primarily of three different people, groups of people, the poor, women, and slaves. That made up the majority of the early church in the early days because they were proclaiming the gospel. And that freedom and liberty that the gospel uh, gave to them was something that people in each of those walks of life uh, really appreciated. Here's also a very interesting fact about slavery, that wherever Christianity has gone around the world and where Christianity has taken hold in a culture, slavery has ceased to exist. You can take that to the bank. That's a historic fact. America is an example of that. In fact, many of the leaders of the abolitionist movement 
were Christians and have to understand in 1725 was the great awakening. One fourth of people came to Christ in the colonies at that time. Also in 1850s, the great businessmen's awakening, many people came to Christ at that time. And these were the people and these were the families. And it was out of those movements that a lot of the abolition movement took place that led our nation out of the horrific atrocity of slavery. Same is true in England. We could go around the world and come up with example after example. But the context here in Colossians chapter 3 is about the issue of integrity. Don't just work hard or do a good job when your boss is there, when your supervisor is seeing you. It says, do not waste time when they're not there. When he or she are not there to see you at work, work just as hard. Do just as good of a job. Because integrity means that you're the same person at all times, that you are an integrated person, and you're an integrated person because of your love for God, your reference for God. You know, our work matters. It's part of our calling in life. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, it says, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. God created us to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. And yes, we do that here at church when we gather together and worship him as part of a body of believers. But do you know that we also do this when we glorify God in our work, when we view our work as our calling and life, when we view our work as our ministry, our service to others, our service to God. And when we work hard and we are a person of integrity inside and outside the church, then we can be thankful that our needs are being met and we can reap in the kingdom of God what we have sown. You know, the great composer Johann Sebastian Bach signed all of his works to the glory of God alone. Is that same signature? on all of your work? Do you see on your work the signature of integrity, the signature of hard work, of service to God and service to others? Is that found in all of your work? Would others who have observed your work firsthand, would they be able to say of your work that it points to the glory of God alone? Would you please pray with me? God, we thank you today for this opportunity to remember all of the hard work that has gone on, that has not only created this nation, but has kept this nation going. And God, all of it is part of the ethos of the Christian faith, which led so many to come to this country in the first place, and led so many to lead this country even through some of its most challenging, difficult times. A revolutionary war, a great civil war, two world wars, a great depression, the civil rights movement, and God, even right now, the tremendous political, uh, civil, social, and racial unrest in our country right now. God, we believe that it's that same kind of, uh, of work ethic and those same kinds of values that matter today, just as they've mattered for the last 250, 300 years in this nation. God, I pray on this Labor Day weekend that we would remember how important labor is because, God, it points to you and you, God, work. And you invite us as a testimony and witness 
of those made in the image and likeness of God to work, to use what we do in life to serve you and bring honor and glory to your name. I pray, God, that would be the signature on all of our work in Jesus' name. To your honor and glory we pray, amen.